Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. B-29 was over Hiroshima carrying an atomic bomb. At 8.15 in the morning of August 6th, Japanese time, the first atomic bomb struck an enemy target. The only reason I'm alive to tell this tale of what we saw is because of the existence of nuclear weapons. That's not hyperbole. In 1945, my father was a newly commissioned second lieutenant in the U.S. Army. I have a photo of him in his graduating class. On the back, he'd gotten most of his classmates to write a sentence about what they expected to be doing in 10 years. More than half had the same answer as my father. My dad wrote in pencil, quote, I expect to be killed fighting for my country, unquote. They all expected to be killed fighting for their country. Now, I don't know the history of any of the other men in that photograph, but if I had to guess... I think it would be likely that none of them would end up being killed fighting for their country. Now, if they'd been Marine butter bars, well, that would have been an entirely different story. My father arrived in Germany in late April of 1945. By that time, just two weeks before VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, the Soviet Red Army still had a lot of fighting and bleeding left to do on the way to the Fuhrer bunker. But the Americans, who could have beat the Soviets handily to the German capital, had been halted dead in their tracks, not by SS Panzer divisions, but rather by a direct order, directly from Schaefe, Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Forces. That order to leave Berlin to the Soviets came from the same Supreme Commander who had decided to let Charles de Gaulle's Free French Army be the first to enter newly liberated Paris just nine months earlier. Over the vehement protests of George Patton, Winston Churchill, and a host of other bewildered Allied leaders, the man who had given these orders would stand firm by them. The glue holding together this persnickety British, French, and American alliance together was General Dwight David Eisenhower and his remarkable sense of fairness and decorum. As the Americans entering the war in the last weeks of 1941 began to shoulder more and more of the burden, the British, who'd been fighting since mid-1939, naturally enough resented being told what to do by what they considered to be swaggering upstarts and latecomers. After a senior American official had griped about his counterpart as that British bastard, Ike just tore into him. There are no British, American, or French bastards in these headquarters, he roared. There are certainly bastards aplenty, and I'm looking at one. Ike had stopped the American armies because he felt that the Soviets deserved to take Berlin. No, there's simply no question about that. The Russians had suffered 25 million casualties and untold destruction and misery since Germany had invaded Russia with the launch of Operation Barbarossa in June of 1941. After fighting and winning what was, without question, the greatest running battle in the history of the world, The Red Army had fought its way back from a few rubble piles in Stalingrad and then slowly slogged their way 
bootstep by bloody bootstep a 1,378 miles back to Berlin. The Russians were sledgehammered into a disorder and chaos of catastrophic dimensions. The catastrophe was so complete that it may, ironically, have saved Russia from collapse. Oh, the Red Army had earned Berlin. There's no question about that. But both Ike and President Roosevelt had been entirely too trusting of Joseph Stalin and sympathy for what Russia had endured was nearly universal among the Allies. Winston Churchill, perhaps using his tremendous intuition, could already sense the Iron Curtain even before Germany had surrendered. He loudly complained that British and American armies could have liberated not only Berlin, but Vienna and other capitals as well. He instinctively felt that wherever the line the Soviet Red Army happened to hold when Germany surrendered would be, in fact, the line of an ideological trench that would bisect Europe as surely as the horrific physical one had done during World War I. But I do wonder, along with many others, how often President Eisenhower would regret this decision by General Eisenhower. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. Iron Curtain has descended across the country. The only answer to communism is a massive offensive for freedom. must be a system of international control and conformity. You and I have a rendezvous with death. Never give in. Never, never, never. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. So what does all that have to do with me? When National Socialist Germany surrendered to the Allies on May 8, 1945, that was not the end of the war. That was the end of half of the war. Just a few weeks earlier, 7,000 Americans had died to raise a flag over a stinking black sand island, a pork chop of ancient lava spewed out at the dormant volcano known as Mount Suribachi. A mere five miles long, Iwo Jima is a speck, a quarter the size of the tiny island of Bermuda where I grew up. But five miles is more than enough room for three full airfields. And so 7,000 American Marines had to die in order to capture those airfields. And they had to capture those airfields for two reasons. First, to prevent Japanese fighters from intercepting the upcoming B-29 raids. And second, to give those magnificent but finicky, aluminum-skinned wonders a place to land should one or more of their four newly built but notoriously unreliable engines decided to call it a day. Everybody who's ever used a home security system either on their own house or if they're watching a house for friends Everybody knows what happens when there's a false alarm. Maybe you didn't enter the numbers correctly, whatever. And we know the alarm goes off, and then the alarm company waits for you to make a call to let them know that it's really you and not somebody actually breaking in. But that can take a fair amount of time, and people can get away with a lot of your stuff in that time. That's why I really like Simply Safe. Simply Safe is different. It uses video camera evidence from outside the house to let the police know right away, immediately, yes, this is an actual break-in. That means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. And it doesn't just protect you when you're away from the house. The external sensors and video cameras means that Simply Safe will notify you if somebody is on your property while you're actually inside the house. 
Simply Safe also protects you from fires, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning. It's 24-7 monitored by live security professionals. You can set it up on your own or you can have somebody come and do you. And most importantly, it only costs 50 cents a day and there are no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com slash cold. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You got nothing to lose. Go now and be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash cold so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash cold. Iwo Jima, you see, was almost exactly halfway between the B-29 bases at Saipan and Tinian and their target, which was the home islands of Japan. The B-29 Superfortress was one of two contenders for the title of the most technologically sophisticated aircraft of World War II, the other one being the ME-262 jet fighter flown by Hitler's Luftwaffe. Now, to give you some idea of how revolutionary the B-29 really was, let's compare it to its more famous Boeing predecessor, the B-17 Flying Fortress. The B-17 first flew in 1935 and would usually fly anywhere between 15 and 25,000 feet at a cruising speed of about 180 miles an hour. In its long-range configuration, each B-17 could carry 4,500 pounds of bombs for a range of about 2,000 miles total. That'd be there and back. The first B-29 flight was in 1942. That's seven years and a great deal of experience after its younger sister. Although it didn't fly significantly higher than the B-17, the B-29 flew far, far more comfortably because unlike the Flying Fortress, the Super Fortress was pressurized, eliminating the need for gunners to wear oxygen masks and electrically heated jackets during the long hours to and from the target. In fact, the B-29 was so advanced that it eliminated the need for gunners altogether, the remotely controlled turrets being manned by a single gunnery officer inside the fuselage. Now, as I said, the B-17 would cruise at about 180 miles an hour. The B-29 was 100 miles an hour better at 290. Depending on configuration, the B-29 could carry 20,000 pounds of bombs against the B-17's 4,500 pounds. But the real asset of the Super Fortress was its amazing range. 3,250 miles, half again more than the B-17, which means that a B-29 could fly from Los Angeles to New York and then backtrack all the way to Chicago, all on a single tank of gas. Now, at those speeds, that would take 11 hours of flying, and the Super Fortresses made flights like that routinely. But despite these impressive achievements, the B-29 had problems, a lot of problems, and most of them had to do with the engines. There were so many engine failures in the early days of the B-29 that 7,000 young American Marines had to die on Iwo Jima to give the Super Fortress crews a chance to survive their record-breaking long-range missions. Going ashore on February 19, 1945, the battle for Iwo Jima was just reaching its bloody crescendo when, to their utter astonishment, the bloodied, exhausted Marines heard a very different roar than the ones made by the Japanese artillery that was falling all around them. They looked up in slack-jawed amazement as the biggest airplane they had ever seen, a B-29 named Dynamite, crippled in an air raid over Tokyo, limped in from the ocean, and wallowed towards the airfield. The big bomber landed hard, clipped a telephone pole with its wing, and came to a stop about 50 feet short of the end of the runway, 50 feet being almost exactly half the length of the aircraft. Lieutenant Raymond Mallow and his crew of 10 airmen were awfully happy to be alive, but there was no time for celebration. Every Japanese artillery piece on the island 
was suddenly trained on the airfield, desperate to bag such an impossibly large trophy. But lightning-fast work by a ground crew had dynamite patched up and ready to fly within the half hour. And then the 65-ton superfortress rolled back down the runway and, surrounded by tracers and exploding shells, climbed back into the sky, heading southeast. The Marines cheered themselves hoarse. Eleven lives were saved and placed on the other side of that grim scale on Iwo Jima. On June 7th, well after the Battle of Iwo Jima had been won, 102 B-29s were forced to land on Iwo, and an incredible 186 bombers used the emergency field on July 24th alone. The sacrifice the U.S. Marines had made on Iwo Jima allowed 2,451 B-29s to land safely before the end of the war. Now, when you add this number to the number of fighter plane pilots who also had a chance to make it home, you end up with 26,961 lives, nearly all of which certainly would have been lost at sea in the middle of the unfathomably huge Pacific had their countrymen not achieved their objective. One of those airmen, the pilot of a B-29 responsible for the lives of the 10 other men on his crew said, whenever I land on this island, I thank God for the men who fought for it. The Marines did not dally at Iwo. The shooting was still going on in earnest as the CB battalions began upgrading the airstrips in order to accommodate a fleet of the world's largest and highest flying airplanes. Once the island was declared secure, the Marines, those of them that were still alive, clambered back up the cargo nets slung over the sides of their transports and steamed almost due west to the final stop before the grand finale. That final stop, Okinawa, which would eventually house the Cold War's B-52 bombers at Kadena Air Force Base, was needed as a final staging area for the invasion. Operation Downfall, the amphibious conquest of Japan, was nearing the final planning stages, and by the time the battle for Okinawa had ended, almost 13,000 Americans would lie dead. Now, some people today say the Japanese resistance was crumbling in these final days of the war. I don't mean to sound rude or impertinent here, but those people are just plain wrong. 1,600 Americans died in the first major battle of the Pacific, the grinding six-month-long toothache known as Guadalcanal. But more than four times as many men would be killed at Iwo Jima, 7,000 of them, and not in six months, but in six weeks. And Okinawa eclipsed them all. 12,500 American soldiers and Marines lay dead on that island, and the Japanese garrison, what was left of it, had followed the example of their comrades at Iwo Jima and had either committed suicidal bonsai charges into American machine guns or killed themselves in ones and twos by embracing a frag grenade. Japanese resistance was not only not crumbling, it seemed to be increasing exponentially the closer the Americans got to Japan. And that was just what had happened on the island. Offshore, the Japanese air attacks against American warships and transports simply skyrocketed in lethality due to the fact that the Japanese had perfected the world's first smart bomb. Swarms of Japanese kamikaze pilots flew themselves into oblivion against the hulls and superstructure of the U.S. fleet. 36 American ships were sunk. 4,900 American sailors died. The U.S. Navy suffered more lost ships and more lost men during the Battle of Okinawa than they had done during the entire previous history of the United States Navy. Land-based planes attempting to silence U.S. fleet bombardment of Okinawa. A 
plane and a low-level attack. If this was how Japan would fight for a volcanic speck in the middle of the ocean and the half-in, half-out, far-flung prefecture of Okinawa, what would happen when it came time to go ashore in Operation Downfall? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, no one really knew. But everyone had a really good guess. The first phase of Operation Downfall was Operation Olympic, the amphibious invasion of the southern island of Kyushu. 767,000 men would hit the beaches sometime during the late fall of 1945. That's four times the number of men that went ashore at Normandy on D-Day. The Americans were not the only ones with a plan. The Japanese battle plan was called Ketsugo. It translates roughly as decisive operation. On June 8, 1945, one month to the day after the surrender of Germany, Japanese Emperor Hirohito declared that Ketsugo was now in effect, adding that, quote, Japan must fight to the finish and choose extinction over surrender, unquote. Now look, when it comes time to make a decision about Japan's true intent, we have a choice here. Between faculty room and cocktail party assertions that Japan was begging to surrender versus the direct order via imperial rescript from the god emperor of Japan. Well, given those two choices, I'm going to have to go with B on this one. The inventor of the kamikaze suicide attacks, Admiral Takajiro Onishi, was already equipping some 32 million Japanese civilians with special weapons. That'd be bamboo spears and children with explosive backpacks throwing themselves under American tanks. If we are prepared to sacrifice 20 million lives in kamikaze effort, victory will be ours. That was the advice Admiral Onishi gave to Hirohito after the Japanese had lost Okinawa. My father would have been on one of those invasion boats. He knew it. They all knew it. The orders had already been cut. One million Americans killed was the best estimate of how much blood was to be spilled. That's a Stalingrad, at least a Stalingrad. Estimates of Japanese soldiers and civilians likely to be killed went from a low of 7 million up to, well, no one really knew. But Iwo and Okinawa had shown us that the 30 million civilians being trained to resist the invasion with suicide packs and bamboo spears were ready to die for the empire of the rising sun. But those 7 or 10 or 20 or 30 million Japanese did not end up dying. And neither did my father or a million other American fathers. None of those people died, and the millions and millions of their descendants would, in fact, actually go on to be born. Hardened Marines, men with a thousand-yard stare of utter exhaustion, either cheered their lungs out or burst into tears, and all of the young men heading into that slaughterhouse, including United States Army 2nd Lieutenant William Joseph Whittle, just recently turned 20 years old, either cheered or cried as well. At precisely 8.15 in the morning of August 6, 1945, Dimples 82, that was the operational call sign for the B-29 named Enola Gay, after the mother of the pilot and wing commander, Paul Tibbetts, released a device containing 141 pounds of enriched uranium 
31,000 feet over Hiroshima, Japan. The bulky, ungainly device fell for 44 seconds as Tibbets wrenched Enola Gay through the diving turn he had practiced so many hundreds of times. 1,900 feet above the city, an explosive charge fired a uranium bullet into a uranium core. This compressed the two elements past critical mass, the point where enough neutrons from the radioactive material are released to split more atoms, releasing more neutrons in the nuclear chain reaction. Now, it wasn't very efficient. Less than 2% of the uranium on this atomic bomb, named Little Boy, would actually undergo the chain reaction. But 2% was enough to cause an explosion equivalent to 16,000 tons of TNT. People on the ground reported first a pika, a brilliant flash of light, and then a dawn, a booming sound like nearby thunder. The pika dawn utterly destroyed everything within a one-mile radius and set fire to the largely wood and paper structures within a two-mile radius. Between 70 to 80,000 people died in the blast and the resulting firestorm. Half a year earlier, over 100,000 Japanese had died in the non-nuclear firebombing of Tokyo on the night of March 9th. 1945. But Japan did not surrender. August 7, 1945, the day after the bombing of Hiroshima, President Truman threatened the Japanese military cabal that was the de facto ruler of the Japanese people that nuclear attacks would continue until they had surrendered unconditionally. Now, on that same day, Japanese physicists returned to Tokyo from Hiroshima, confirming that an atomic bomb had devastated the city. Despite all of this, Admiral Suemu Toyota, fully aware of what his nation was up against, estimated that the Americans had only one or two atomic bombs left to deploy. Radio stations all across the home islands reported on the destruction of Hiroshima, adding that surrender was unthinkable and Japan's refusal to capitulate would result in ultimate victory. Or, in the words of Admiral Toyota, there would be more destruction but the war would go on. And they believe that it is the right and destiny of Japan's emperors to rule the whole world. To bring about the fulfillment of this destiny and to destroy all nations and peoples which stand in the way of its fulfillment is the sacred duty of Japan's army and navy. Also, during the day and night of August 7th, U.S. commanders and intelligence specialists awaited the surrender of Japan. Not only was this not forthcoming, nothing was forthcoming. After listening to the widespread Japanese radio stations exhorting the country's civilians to sharpen bamboo spears in the face of American atomic warfare, it became sadly clear to American ears that the only response to the loss of Hiroshima would be stony silence. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Project Alberta, the support team that assembled and transported the nuclear weapons, advised the American High Command that the second bomb, a plutonium implosion device known as Fat Man, would not be ready until August 11th. But Paul Tibbetts, commander of the 509th Composite Group and pilot for the Hiroshima mission, was looking at several days of bad weather inbound around that time and asked the Project Alberta technicians if they could deliver Fat Man by August 9th. They said they would try. The Project Alberta team had brought three identical finned casings for the actual plutonium core. These casings were labeled F-31, F-32, and F-33. Once it became clear that Tibbetts' request for an early delivery was feasible, the 509th spent the afternoon of August 8th loading bomb casing F-33 with an appropriate dummy warhead and practiced the bomb drop for the next day's delivery of Fat Man, which would be inserted into casing F-31. At 3.49 on the morning of August 9, 1945, three days after Enola Gay had left for Hiroshima, a B-29 codenamed Dimples 77 climbed into the Pacific darkness. The name on the side of the Nagasaki bomber was Boxcar. And while Tibbetts and the Enola Gay team had flown a textbook perfect mission, this second atomic attack would be plagued by difficulties from the start. These began just before takeoff. A defective fuel pump meant that 640 gallons of fuel were not only inaccessible, the weight of that fuel would have to be flown to Tokyo and back, since repairing boxcar, the B-29 carrying Fat Man, would take many hours, and moving the bomb to another aircraft would also require many hours of work. So, boxcar roared into the night on schedule, overweight and underfueled. Boxcar pilot Chuck Sweeney was on schedule to rendezvous with Dimples 90, another B-29 carrying cameras and instrumentation. But Dimples 90, the call sign for a B-29 named Big Stink, was not where it was supposed to be. Despite orders to wait no longer than 15 minutes, Sweeney circled the rendezvous point for 40 minutes before finally pressing on to the primary target, Kokura, some 30 minutes flying time away. But Kokura was invisible under a thick cloud of smoke caused by a conventional firebombing raid on nearby Yahada the day before. And after three nerve-wracking runs, the bombardier was unable to identify the aim point through the thick smoke, and so after another 50 minutes of delay, Boxcar headed for its secondary target, the port city of Nagasaki. At 11.01 a.m. on August 9th, 1945, Boxcar released Fat Man, and then instantly turned hard and dove for speed. 47 seconds later, Fat Man exploded 1,600 feet above the surface, halfway between the Mitsubishi Steel and Arms Works and the Nagasaki Arsenal. Fat Man detonated with the energy equal to 21 kilotons, that's 21,000 tons of TNT. The Enola Gay had returned to Tinian to great celebration, but boxcar was not only too low on fuel to make it back to base, it was too low on fuel to make it to Iwo Jima. Diverting unexpectedly to Okinawa, Boxcar received no reply when it radioed for landing clearance, with every flare on board being fired out of every opening on the Silver Strata Fortress. The number two engine on the B-29 sputtered and died on final approach. It had run out of fuel. Coming in hot, Boxcar bounced, landed hard, and was about to plow through an entire ramp of B-29s before Sweeney and his co-pilot, both standing on the brakes, managed to shear off in the opposite direction, its left wing pointing straight down the runway 
towards the black skid marks it had left behind. And at that instant, a second engine shut down due to fuel starvation. Back at Nagasaki, poor visibility meant that Fat Man had detonated considerably off target, above a shallow valley. And although Fat Man was significantly more powerful than Little Boy, much of the blast from Fat Man was confined by the valley walls. Now, despite that, no less than 40,000 people were killed in the initial explosion. And so the rest of August 9th passed in silence. So did August 10th. The only word out of Tokyo was a willingness to discuss a partial surrender that kept the emperor in place, guaranteed no foreign occupation, and continued to allow Japan to remain free of any foreign coercion. In the imperial palace, discussions continued. All agreed that American demands that the emperor be removed would be met with continued fighting. So for those who say that Japan had been ready to surrender before the nuclear attacks, this is simply impossible to explain. By August 11th, the Japanese leadership was five days past the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and two days past that of Nagasaki. In fact, when the emperor finally made his decision on August 12th, a military coup was attempted by several Japanese officers determined to find the pre-taped surrender message and destroy it before it could be broadcast. Vehement protests over the use of the A-bombs was already widespread by the time Hirohito announced the surrender of his empire, and they've grown louder over the years. But Hirohito himself was very clear about what had turned him from sacrificing 30 million of his people to an American invasion. He said, quote, The enemy now possesses a new and terrible weapon with the power to destroy many innocent lives and do incalculable damage in a tinny voice made even more surreal by the archaic, stilted, high Japanese that he had used for the recording. Should we continue to fight, not only would it result in an ultimate collapse and obliteration of the Japanese nation, but also it would lead to the total extinction of human civilization. This is the reason why we have ordered the acceptance of the provisions of the Joint Declaration of the Powers. And then came silence as his weeping, fiercely proud subjects finally realized the extent of their defeat. Despite the relentless firebombing, which had done far more damage than Fat Man and Little Boy, it was two bombs that brought about the Japanese surrender and ended World War II. For a Cold War retrospective, that was a lot of time to spend back in World War II. But without it, the entire American premise, both militarily and emotionally, is simply unintelligible. Facing an appalling bloodbath in a society with very thin tolerances for bloodbaths of any kind, American science had won the battle that perhaps a million American soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines would have had to give their lives for. The cost of the Manhattan Project that had developed the two bombs was astronomical. American money had bought back the lives of a million American servicemen, and America had plenty of money. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A mere three years after Hirohito's broadcast, the American people realized that they were staring another bloodbath right in the face. The Red Army, battle-hardened along the bloody road from Stalingrad to Berlin, had millions of men as well as thousands of tanks and artillery pieces bristling along the length of the entire Iron Curtain. Trading man for man, tank for tank, was simply unthinkable, not least because the Red Army units were already on the scene, while the American response sat half a world away, with a great ocean to cross, a time-consuming process to say the least, and certainly long enough for a Soviet advance to steamroller across Western Europe and be dug in on the French coast. This, without question, had been Stalin's plan since at least 1944. His people had already suffered 25 million casualties, and if Stalin ordered them to sustain several million more to secure all of Europe, his terrified citizens would simply have no choice but to oblige him. When looking at the map board on August 5th, 1945, the day before the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Stalin knew for an utter certainty that all of Europe lay within his easy grasp. When attending the Potsdam Conference a mere two weeks earlier, the brand new U.S. President Harry S. Truman had advised Stalin that the United States had successfully tested a bomb of stupendous explosive power. Stalin politely acted surprised and pleased, but secretly. He'd been well aware of the American atomic bomb project, and to tell the truth, he really didn't think that much of it. It seemed insanity to him that America would spend the vast fortune it had just invested for the sake of one single weapon. Now, divisions were the answer, army divisions, not just a bomb or two. That was on August 5th. On August 6th, Enola Gay returned from her mission, and three days later, Boxcar had limped back from hers. In the time between these two missions, Stalin had ripped up the neutrality pact that he'd had with Japan throughout the entire war, a pact that had ensured that neither Russia or Japan would have had to fight a two-front war. But now that the Pacific War had been won by the Americans, Stalin invaded on a relatively small scale some of the islands of the Japanese nation, both Sakhalin and Kuril Islands, a cynical move by the ultimate cynic, but one that kept those islands under Soviet occupation for the duration of the Cold War. Historically, there doesn't seem to have been any single light bulb moment when Stalin realized that his carefully laid plans for capturing all of Europe had evaporated in a millisecond flash, a picadon instant when every weapon in the world was suddenly made obsolete. But that is exactly what happened. Those two flashes of light that had ended World War II had miraculously prevented the conventional World War III that America and Britain had not the slightest chance of stopping or even slowing down until it was all over and far too late. But slowly, over the course of days or even weeks, Stalin began to realize that what this expensive American toy had done in two brief flashes was what the entire Nazi war machine had failed to do, 
negate the ground power of the Red Army. Not only would the triumphant United States Air Force be able to annihilate Soviet armored concentrations, the imperialist enemy could rain atomic death down on Moscow, Leningrad, Stalingrad, and every other Soviet city. Not even the Russians, who so far had been forced to withstand anything, could withstand that. The overwhelming Soviet advantage in conventional forces, thousands of tanks, millions of men, had been balanced out by a hundred pounds of gray metal, cunningly engineered by the best minds on the planet who'd been working around the clock for the past several years out in the desert wastelands of New Mexico. So now, perhaps, you understand the mindset of the two superpowers as they entered into their 43-year conflict. The Soviet Union, bloodied but unbowed by the most appalling war in human history, division after battle-hardened division waiting along the entire length of the invisible Iron Curtain. The United States, which had invested the time, money, and resources to create a miracle weapon that had rendered the invasion of Japan moot and stood ready to do the same to the Soviet invasion that had been so carefully prepared and was waiting in the wings. On one side, the brute force sledgehammer, the land army of the largest nation on earth, with a seemingly endless supply of fresh recruits capable of sustaining a seemingly endless amount of punishment. On the other side, the scalpel, the millisecond timing needed to rain atomic fire from silver bombers in the dark blue skies of the stratosphere. Now, of course, Russia would need the bomb, and quickly, American conventional forces would need to be rebuilt, and quickly, But the pattern for the entire Cold War had been set right at the beginning. Massive Soviet superiority in conventional arms versus massive American superiority in technology and know-how. Quality versus quantity was the question that determined the Cold War. The American inability, the unwillingness anyway, to commit to the kind of casualties a conventional war in Europe would entail against the Soviet inability, despite fanatical willingness, to catch the American military in the continuing advances in lethality needed to offset the disparity in numbers. Both east and west of the Berlin Wall that had yet to be built, both sides stared at each other and realized their only chance for victory lay in fighting the next war on their own conditions. Yet, each side realizing that to fight on their own strengths would paradoxically trigger the strengths of the other side. So, there sits the reason for over four decades of stalemate and terror, each side unable to fight on the battlefield of their opponents, and yet each side with the ability to catastrophically harm the other. It was this delicate, hairspring balance that kept and would continue to keep the Cold War cold. The Cold War, What We Saw, is written and presented by Bill Whittle, produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer is Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our associate producer is Katie Swinnerton. Post-production producer, Alex Zingaro. Story producer, Jared Sachel. Edited by Matthew Scheller. Original music by Kyle Perrin. Audio recorded and mixed by Mike Coromina. Designed by Cynthia Angulo. The Cold War, What We Saw, is an esoteric radio theater production. Copyright, Esoteric Radio Theater 2020. 
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.